Hello all you fans of stories, this is episode number 78 of Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and for this episode, I am really lucky to sit down with Megan O'Russell and hear her amazing story and her journey from performing on the stage to becoming a self-published author of 19 books in 19 months. It was quite the discovery for me. And I'm really thankful I get the chance to share this episode with you. Quick reminder, before the interview begins, you'll hear a few ads. These are part of a uh, project I'm lucky enough to participate in with Anchor, promoting voting and voter information. Thanks for understanding the need for these ads to play before the conversation. And please consider all the resources as they can be extremely helpful when it comes to your own voting experience. The election is coming up soon, and of course, once it's over, things will return back to normal and we'll resume the normal advertising, interview, and storytelling with Seth's structure. So, thanks for listening along to the following ads and the great conversation that follows. Episode number 78 with Megan O'Russell. Hello and welcome to another episode of Storytelling with Seth. It's my pure and absolute luck and uh, the kindness of those I've just met that I'm sitting down today with the amazing Megan O'Russell has quite an extensive history and it's led her to this great place of writing and storytelling. I'm looking forward to talking about all of it with her so you can enjoy it too. But first, I'm going to allow Megan to do an introduction and just sort of tell us a little bit about what we should know off the bat. Megan, thank you for being on Storytelling with Seth. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Uh, And a little introduction about me. I guess the, the easiest place to start would be that I am a storyteller. I have spent my entire life on stage literally since I was four. Uh, and about eight years ago, that love of storytelling sort of morphed from being purely theatrical to becoming an author as well and telling stories through books. And I've had a very long journey with several publishers involved. And I, in 2019, set out as an indie author on my own. And through that journey, ended up publishing 19 books in 19 months. So it was quite the adventure. Well, it certainly sounds like it. I mean, one, you've got so many great things to consider there, 19 titles in 19 months. Did you write each one per month or? No. So It was one of those, it would never have happened if not for a lot of really horrible things. Oh, no. Um, Yeah. So when I started off in publishing as an author, I did not want to be an indie author. I did not want to even consider the self-publishing route. And granted, this was like nine years ago when I first got my first traditional publishing contract. But I ended up with five publishers closing on me. And the first one, it was, I had only submitted my first book, The Tethering, for a month before I got my very first publishing contract, which is like completely unheard of. That's not a thing that happens. Uh, But I got this call. They wanted to give me a contract. Yes, it was long enough ago that you got a call about a contract instead of an email. And then they were going to mail me a hard copy. Before... 
the copy actually came in the mail, the publisher had shut down. So that was, you know, less than ideal. But I jumped back on the uh, submission wagon and found another publisher. And that time we got all the way through five rounds of edits. I had a cover, I had a release date, there was a blog tour booked and that publisher shut down and the FBI even got involved. So that was messy. And then, you know, I found another publisher because clearly I don't learn very quickly. Uh, so I ended up with another publisher and they actually managed to publish the first two books in the tethering series before they stepped out of the publishing industry. And then I found two more publishers, one for my Girl of Glass series and one that had contracts for the Tale of Brian Adams series and the Chronicles of Maggie Trent. They also ended up signing the Tethering series. And so at the end of 2018, I had 16 books under contract with two different publishers. And in the span of about three weeks, one of my publishers shut down in a in, in the friendliest and most respectable way that can happen. And the other one just started tanking to the point where I could no longer excuse ignoring the warning signs of what I knew was going to happen. So I took all the rights to all of my books back and I had a, a very sad chat with my agent who basically said, you know, all of these books have been tainted at this point with, you know, bad publisher reputations and they've all been out in the world before. So there's really not a chance of us getting them a contract at a big name publisher where you'd be safe from these things happening. So you can either shelve them or self-publish them. It makes no difference to me was sort of the response. Mm -hmm. And I was unwilling to shelve them. And so I, you know, drank a couple of bottles of wine and ate way too much ice cream and decided that I was going to do it on my own. So when I started down the road to publishing the 19 books in 19 months, let me do a quick count in my head. <laughs> <laughs> you're allowed. I'm a terrible uh, math person, so you're fine in my book. So at that point, seven of the books had been completed. Um, so they were written before I started. Others had been partially started, but then... I sort of stopped working on them because I was waiting on, you know, edits on the earlier books in the series, because if you're going with a traditional publisher, you should never write the sequel before you get content edits on the first book or you end up with huge inconsistencies. Don't do it. Um, but I went through and I re-edited and changed the things that I hadn't liked that my editors from the traditional publishers had sort of forced on me. And I finished those series and I published them and I started the Anna Vilbrea series, which was the first of my series to have never touched a publisher or agent's hands at all. So that was fun. And mm. once I, you know, finished the Tethering series, finished the Girl of Glass series, finished the Anna Vilbrea series, put out the three books in the Chronicles of Maggie Trent, the final book in the Bryant Adams series is coming out in November and then book one in the Guilds of Ilbrea series, all of that put together ended up being 19 books. There's also a couple novellas tossed in there, but you know, <laughs> they're shorter, but yeah, it, it ended up being 19 books and I hadn't planned it that way. That wasn't the goal. It was just a matter of 
I sincerely felt that even though my my publisher shutting down was not my fault. It does sometimes feel like maybe I'm a curse on small presses. Like maybe there's something about me that just makes them shut down. But really, realistically, it's not my fault. But I felt like I had betrayed my readers by offering them the beginning of these series and asking them to invest, you know, their hearts and their time in these characters and then never completing the story cycle for them. And so that's really what my goal was, was to complete these story cycles so that my readers could know how the series ended. Well, well, that really is quite a consideration on your part, that you've created characters who readers have invested in. You want to give them the satisfaction that you know is waiting at the ends of, at the end of these trilogies, at the end of these tales. And keeping that in mind and using it to sort of motivate the completion of those and making sure they can get in the hands of your readers. That's not something you're always going to hear, but it, it definitely sounds like something that once you made that commitment, the reward was greater than the effort that you had to put in to complete it. It, it is. And it's also even like, even if it's not that I'm going to make huge amounts of money from completing one series, if I can keep my readers trusting me and believing that when I say I'm going to finish a series, it's going to happen is what's important to me is them knowing that, you know, they can email me and ask when the next book is going to come out and I will have an answer for them. It may be not for six months. It may be, it has a pre-order set up for next year, but there will be an answer of when the series is going to be finished. And I'm going to keep my word on that. And that level of trust between me and my readers is the thing that I don't want to break. And I'm really impressed as I think about it now that you were able to take control of that by becoming self-published. If you were with another house, a publishing house, you would be sort of limited by what their planning and decisions involve. You Absolutely. couldn't confidently tell your reader yeah, it's going to be out on this day. You have to actually say, well, when I'm allowed to tell you, they'll tell me and then I can tell you. And that that's like three layers of control before you even get a chance to relate it to your readers. Instead, you've taken control. And because of that, you have the power to let them know exactly what they're looking for. And you can back it behind a promise you know you're in, tro- in control of as well. That's That's got to be extremely empowering after the process you've gone through prior. It, it really is. And one of the publishers I left, they had contracted 12 books from me. And it was after the contract was signed and sort of why I managed to get out of everything so easily. They decided that, no, no, they were only going to publish one of my books a year, which sounds fine, except you're rotating through three series. So at that point, you're asking readers to wait three years for the next book in the series, which means it would be 12 years from when book one comes out to when the series is completed. Like that's George R. R. Martin long. That's too much. You can't ask people to wait that long. They're going to have to reread the beginning books in the series every time a new book comes out. And, and that's not something I want to force readers into if they want to enjoy my work. Yeah. I mean, Wow, that definitely sounds like it's a strategy designed to milk as much as possible out of 
the books proceeding to then build the interest into the next ones. And I'm, I'm all for recognizing when there needs to be a dollar made and how the profits uh, is how the continuation of publishing occurs. But those don't sound like considerations that keep the reader in mind. They sound like they're being made from a purely financial approach. And with that consideration, they're, they're not looking at the timeline the way you are or the way your readers were, which is I can start a book now and I can finish the series 12 years from now. That's, <laughs> that's a very frustrating concept to consider when you put it on a timeline like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too much to ask from people when there are so many other books and stories out there that they can go to for entertainment and escapism. So that was one of the best things about not really turning away from traditional publishing. My, my agent still has a few projects for me that he's shopping to large houses only, no more small presses for me. Um, Understood. But as taking back the, my entire backlist, that was one of the most freeing things was just being able to put the stories out there and let readers know what happens. I'm really impressed by the fortitude the resolve that you showed during all of this and the reward, which was getting control back over those titles and being able to then do with them the things you wanted. I was wondering if it would be possible to go back a little bit and sort of, you know, look at where some of those foundation, you know, where that foundation of resolve came from and how some of it's based on your experiences, starting out with your time as a storyteller on the stage would you mind if we turn the clock back just for a little bit and, and talk about how that started and, and maybe see if we can find some fun threads that tie into uh, your storytelling now? Sure. Wonderful. So tell me how it all started. Were you drawn to the stage? Were you pushed to the stage? How did you end up on that stage? <laughs> it's, I swear my mother was not an awful mother, <laughs> um, but she was. She was a, uh, a penny pincher. So she had a Girl Scout troop and they had booked tickets to see Arsenic and Old Lace, the play. That is not appropriate for a three-year-old in any way. But one of the Girl Scouts got sick and they couldn't get a refund on the ticket. So my mother took her three-year-old to see Arsenic and Old Lace. Not, not the best. It's about poisoning people. That's about death. Um, <laughs> Now, is this out of hand for your mom? Was this something that would be characteristic of her as you were growing up? Or was this oh, sort absolutely. of a... Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yes. If it was free Shakespeare, it did not matter how bloody it was. Four-year-old Megan was in the front row watching like limbs fly all over the place. And she's like, it's art. It doesn't matter. Okay, mom. Sure. Let's stab some more people. Um but in Arsenic and Old Lace, there is, it's a, it's a great play, but there is one character who believes himself to be Teddy Roosevelt, and he thinks he is digging the Panama Canal in the basement. Spoiler alert, he's digging graves. But he gets to run down the stairs with a shovel screaming to Panama, and I was not allowed to run with a shovel, run down the stairs, or scream to Panama in the house. And I was like, this sucks. Why does he get to do this? I don't get to do this. And so I stood in the aisle and watched the whole show. And 
I met the actor who played Teddy Roosevelt afterwards and he was a very kind, tolerant man. Like I like crawled up on his lap and I was like, what is this magic? Why do you get to run inside? And he was like, well, if you become an actor, you get to do lots of things they don't let you do normally. And I was like, this is great. I'm in. I want to, I want to do that. So I decided when I was three, I wanted to be an actor so I could run up and down stairs, which is not the most practical way to choose a career, but that's okay. Um, and it, it really never left. I started in dance right after that. My mom sort of bribed a studio owner to let me in when I was too young. And then I did my first community theater production when I was four. And I stayed in theater more or less throughout you know, my childhood and into high school. And then I went to college as a dance performance major. And I have been making my living in theater ever since I left college, which is, you know, kind of crazy, but it's, it's a great way to make a living if you, if you don't mind traveling all the time. (laughs) Well, I did notice when I was, uh, you know, looking through your biography that you have traveled quite a bit. You know, it looks like you originally started out in upstate New York, but you've since made your way across North America including Alaska, and even as far away as Thailand. Were there specific productions that led to that? Was it part of one just big show, or was it a series of different events that led you across not only uh, the country, but parts of the world? Well, the so in Alaska, <laughs> in Denali, Alaska, there, hopefully there still will be after the pandemic. I'm not sure, you know, who can say with the arts these days. But mm. there was two dinner theaters right outside the entrance to the National Park. If you're not familiar with Denali National Park, it's amazing. You should put it on your bucket list. But there's only one road that goes into the park. And it only goes in about 60 miles or 90 miles. Um, and so the dinner theaters are right near the entrance to the park because when the park closes at night, there's nothing else to do if you're not into breweries and pizza. So I went up there for four seasons and worked with the theaters that are up there. And that was amazing. I did a lot of traveling across country. I did two North American tours. Uh, One was Fiddler on the Roof and the other was Wizard of Oz. So I spent two national tours sleeping on the floor of a bus, which is oddly comforting if you like being in small places. I, I really liked having it be socially acceptable that I could curl up under my seat and pretend there were no other people around. There are many other times in life that you can do that. Um, And then the international travel really came from just not spending my tour per diem. I just, my husband is also a performer and he was on the tours with me and we just wouldn't spend our per diem. And then we'd take it and travel internationally as our post tour treat. So that has always been very cool of, you know, when we finish a gig like that, where you have the choice to eat out every day or save your pennies and go international for a while, we've always made the choice to go international. And that, that has been a great joy for me. I can honestly say that my wife is of a similar mind. She loves to say, well, we could put this money in savings or we could go somewhere. And in one year, that meant going to uh, the Philippines, Italy, and then Hong Kong. And I was so thankful. I thought to myself, I have definitely picked the right person. We know what we're trying to do here. Yeah, it's it's great. I love it. I love traveling. And it was it was so weird because we for the the Wizard of Oz national tour, we did oh I don't know like 
months and months on the road. It was like eight months, nine months on a tour bus. And then we ended with a two week sit down in Chicago. And then we had two weeks off before we were doing uh, a resident production of The Wizard of Oz. So we were going to be sitting down at the same theater for eight weeks. And we had those two weeks off and everyone else was like, I'm going home and I'm not moving. I'm going to live on my couch. And <laughs> I bribed my mother to meet the tour bus, gave her everything but what I could fit in a uh, European regulation rolly bag for an overhead compartment. Jess kept my husband and I each kept a rolly bag and our computers sent everything else home. And then we flew from Chicago to Greece. And then we flew from, we went to Greece and Italy. And then we flew from Italy to start rehearsal for the, the sit down production the next day. And everyone's like, wow. why are you choosing to live out of a suitcase even more? Why are you doing that? And I was like, because flights from Chicago are cheap. <laughs> Hey, that's a good enough reason. I mean, well, and the tour gave us some money. They were like, at the end of the tour, they're like, here's this set amount of money to get you home instead of booking a ticket. And I was like, wait a second, you're just going to deposit this in my account and you're not going to check where I'm booking a ticket to? And they're like, oh, we don't care where you go. And I was like, well, <laughs> that's like three quarters of a ticket back and forth from Europe. So I don't know why I wouldn't do this. <laughs> Uh, do, if you don't mind me asking where you went in Greece and Italy, since they were, you know, such a great spontaneous experience. Sure. Um, I went to, we went to, I, my sister and her husband joined us for the first part and we went to Athens and Delphi and Meteora. And then we cut back through Athens on our way to Crete or to um, Santorini and then my husband and I continued to Crete and then Venice and Florence and Montepulciano and then we ended up in Rome so just sort of whizzing through Europe for two weeks it was really fun wow yeah that does sound amazing I'm going to have to consider running this by my we we want to go back to Italy our she had gone before, before we met, but when we went together, it was, we landed in Rome and then we went up to Florence to Assisi and then came back home or came back to Rome before we, we finished up. And the only thing that really got me was, man, there's so much more of this wonderful place I would love to explore. We should have made the trip longer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was my, it was my husband and I it was our second time to oh, wow. Italy and I love it there so much and there is so much I want to explore and we finally through through me almost murdering him um, <laughs> ended up with a rental car this time which he had always refused to drive in Italy <laughs> and so it it was very cool to get to drive through it it was his fault we missed the only train that could get us where we wanted to go that day so he had to either drive the rental car or or you know I was going to strangle him. Those were the only two choices. So he drove yeah. a car and that worked really well. <laughs> Definitely. It's much easier to drive a rental car than to figure out what to do with a dead body. Because once you strangle somebody, there's all sorts of problems you got to deal with afterwards. Yeah. So I, I think well, you made the right choice. Yeah. Well, I just, I did. don't know how to drive stick. So I was like, it's literally you. Like you have to fix this because there's no other train. <laughs> oh, so, wow. That's a yeah, lot of so he did. And it, it went it went really well. It was really fun. 
But there was definitely a good five minutes where I was just standing there silently glaring at him. And he was like, I'll fix it. I promise I'll fix it. I'll fix it. And I was like, yes, yes, you will. We have a hotel reservation tonight and I'm not missing it. Oh boy. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were staying uh, in an old monastery and there was like a wine walk and I hadn't been fed breakfast. So there was like a, a lot going on that morning where it was, it was not a great situation for anybody. Yeah. I, Hey, I, what matters is you guys found the solution. You used the solution and you got to that monastery. There was food, there was wine, there was. Oh, it know. was great. Wonderful. I think, yeah. I think the most disappointing part was he hadn't driven a, a stick shift in almost 10 years at that point. And I was so excited. I had my phone out. I was going to like video him trying to figure it out and like post a video to our friends and be like, Mwahaha, look at him failing at driving the stick shift. And he was like, oh, I looked it up on YouTube. I think I can do it. And then he drove perfectly the whole way. I was like, this is the most disappointing video. But Someone does not know how the rules work, huh? Like, I clearly. Know. <laughs> that but would be one okay. of those moments. Yeah, that would be one of those moments my wife would say, sorry, one week, retrain. I don't know what's wrong with you, but retrain. We're just going <laughs> to <laughs> correct all these problems. It's a long running joke between the two of us of, you know, really? You don't know how this works? One week, retrain. We'll get back to you. You clearly need it. <laughs> Because we we all know how this works. You're clearly messy. Yeah. And, well, and just who like reteaches themselves to drive a stick shift after a decade. And he had learned to drive a stick shift on a, a Model T kit car. So not wow. really a real car at all. And I was like, <laughs> this isn't fair. You can't you learn those things from YouTube. That's not how humans work. <laughs> you can't be put in a difficult situation and then execute it flawlessly. Simply not allowed. I don't understand. Yeah, I'm an author. I should know. That's literally not how the plot goes. <laughs> Your readers would really not be happy. <laughs> that could be part of the discussion. So tell me now, you've, you've had all these wonderful experiences that you're describing from your love of the stage. And uh, I'm curious, did you ever get the opportunity to have one of those wild screaming, running with the dangerous thing in your hand moments on stage to recreate that, that first moment from Arsenic and Lace when you were sort of just, you know, mesmerized by that idea? Did you ever get a chance to live it out with a character where you said, finally... I get the bloody chainsaw or whatever the device is and I get to run around with a dangerous implement and scream like I never would have been allowed. I mean, not really. Women are shockingly given the friendly props more often. I have gotten to do some farces. So there has been like a lot of running around and screaming and slamming doors and, you know, prop falling over the back of couches. But women are rarely handed like decent weapons on stage. It's usually like, a lamp or a phone or something friendly. Like I had a whip in one show, but as far as like shovels and axes and things like that, you really don't get those very often. I did get to have a pretty nice club in Beauty and the Beast for the mob scene, but that was really the closest. And that was more, it was more lame as a rob than actually getting to run around, but it was still fun. And, you know, I've gotten to do, I love doing kid shows. I spend most of my time doing like, you know, the Broadway style musicals like, you know, Beauty and the Beast, Crazy for You, 42nd Street, those sorts of things. But sometimes I get to do kids shows if they're running at the same theater at the same time. And in those, you do get to do a lot of like 
the weird screaming, running around, doing silly things that would never be acceptable in real life. And I, I love doing that for the kids because I know that that weird slapstick stuff that you're like, really, why am I doing this? Is a lot of times what draws kids into theater more because they realize the absurd things that are allowed when you're on stage. And how one of my favorite things from having a conversation with a lot of really fun actors I knew in my 20s when I was starting out as a writer, but also getting the chance to meet all these great different artistic personalities was that there was this position of, but it was my choice. When it came to this character, I was making choices and this is the choice I ended up with. And the sort of freedom that would go with some of those choices and the things that were allowed if that argument was, you know, something that connected strongly enough with the character. I was always sort of strung away by that, thinking to myself, what a freedom. If you can find a reason why the character would make that choice and you can stand behind that choice, what can't you do? I mean, I'm sure there's limits, but it, it sounds like you got a chance to push those and, and demonstrate it for, for kids who love that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's true. And one of the, so I, I do, a lot of the work that I do is in the ensemble. So sometimes you get to be the person in the spotlight and that's fun. But a lot of times it's more fun to be in the ensemble. First of all, you do a lot more work. So that's great. The show goes faster. But also you get to be a lot more people. And sometimes you get to be someone who the light isn't on. And when the light isn't on you, you can sometimes do some of your best work. I... um I'm a little notorious in the the company that I work for most of it's okay. Just give her, just give her a prop and put her up stage. It'll be fine because I, I will have a great time and they, I was doing a production of Saturday night fever and they just needed people to make it look like it was a club, even though they were out of actors. And so they just put me upstage on a platform with a martini glass by myself for 10 minutes in this martini glass. And I had, a scene and I never pulled focus from what was happening downstage because I'm a professional, but <laughs> the director was like that. That's the best work you've ever done. That was amazing. It was my favorite thing. Or I was in a kid show and for some reason, everyone else in the show was in this scene. But my character was just not with them for no reason. Like the, this, the playwrights had just forgotten to include her. It was very odd. And so they were like, just have problems getting out of your desk chair. We were all students, we were kids. And so I had like five minutes of being stuck in this desk chair, just me and my backpack trying to get out of a chair for like five minutes. And so I got to end up like upside down and I was tangled on things and I couldn't get my backpack. And it was weird, but it was fun because I wasn't in the light and the director told me to get out of the chair. So I'm going to spend five minutes getting out of a chair. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, Megan, that's a great story. I, I love stuff like that. Like there's, there's such an amazing opportunity when, like you described it, the light isn't on you and you don't pull focus, which is, I, I love how you pointed out that you didn't do that. You're a professional, you know, the difference, but you were able to do exactly what was needed for that moment. And man, that, that has to be a great experience, a great feeling. I'm, I'm really thankful you shared that story with us, really. Of course. <laughs> um, so tell me about the beginning stages of moving away from um, primarily being on the stage and using your gifts 
as a storyteller to put words on the page and eventually even uh, take on a new role performing with them, which we'll get to a little bit down the road. But starting with the, the sort of next stage of progression, did you move from the stage directly into writing or was there a series of other events that led to that? Well, pre, pre-pandemic, I was still on the stage. I just sleep a lot less. Um, <laughs> but I haven't really stepped away yet. It, it is my goal. I don't think I could ever actually leave theater. Um, I don't think I'm capable of it. It is my goal to only take the shows I want to do, you know, never do those awkward shows where you're like, why am I here again? Um, But I don't think I want to step away completely. I don't think I would ever be happy. Um, I started writing because I was actually in a production, which was one of the ones that, you know, I would not take now. Uh, And I was super unhappy. I was not happy with the cast. I wasn't happy with my track in the show. I wasn't really happy with the, the living environment I was in. And I just needed something else. I needed something that I could be in control of in my life. I needed an escape. And so I started working on the tethering and I was uh, like sitting in my basement, windowless, black mold room in cast housing, um, being like, I'm going to be a published author. I was just literally writing scenes in a notebook and I did it in the wrong order. I was writing things not in chronological order. Sometimes I had written the same scene twice because I just liked writing it. And it wasn't until I was like, yay, I finished it. And my husband saw it and he was like, okay, this is good, but this isn't a book. And I was like, oh, should I make it into a book that we sort of were like, Oh, well now we have to put it in an order and like edit it. Ah, geez. Um, But it started out as that, as a way to sort of escape and have something I was in charge of. And one of the things that I like most about writing is normally you're, you end up with a director you like and a choreographer you like and a cast you like, and you have a great time and you do this wonderful professional show and you offer your, audience an emotional turning point and then you go home and it's great but sometimes you're in shows where it's just awful and you're not happy with the director you're not happy with the choreographer and the cast is filled with divas and your roommates are noisy and the plus side of writing is you are the director you are the choreographer you're the casting director and you can kill off any characters that make you mad so it's amazing because you are in control you control the environment. To a certain extent, in staying true to your characters, they do end up having some control. But you're the one who put them there and it's your fault at that point. And so that was what really pulled me deeper into writing was that sense of autonomy of I can create this art and it doesn't take 30 other people to make it happen. And I loved that. And so after I got the first book, The Tethering, published, I started working on other projects and it's just sort of, I mean, depending on who you ask, I a lot of control with how many books I have, but it is that it is the same thing as being in theater where you, you want to be an emotional catalyst for your audience. You want to tell them the story. You, you have this idea of what you want them to feel when they either leave the 
leave the theater or close the book. And so those things are also similar. It's really the same job. I'm just in charge of different aspects of it. Um, and I am spending more time writing and less time focusing on theater, especially these days with, you know, theaters not being opened. But to me, the two careers are a perfect fit because I can write when I'm living in cast housing. I can write from my seat on the tour bus. I can write from my room in Alaska. So it, they, both careers really work very well together. Wow. That's really amazing that you've been able to find that sort of synthesis between the two, that they're not conflicting or in any way competing for your time, that you can give to one the time it needs, such as the time you'll be on stage. But when that time is over, when there's the in-between time until you're next on stage again, you have all that time available to pursue your writing, to work on the next part of a story, start a new story or bring one to a close. And the way those two are now able the way you described it, to fit together. Uh, sounds like one of those perfect puzzle piece combinations. Did it always feel that way or was there a, a gradual adjustment period or was it just that writing fits so naturally into these you know, pockets between time on the stage? It, it really does. When I was working on a traditional publishing schedule, so that really meant I was writing two, maybe three books a year, I was editing, but every edit had at least a month turnaround, so I had 30 days to get it done. It was very easy to fit the two together because that doesn't take that long. Writing two or three books a year it really doesn't take that many hours, maybe two to three hours a day, maybe. Um, now that I've sort of picked it up and am working as an indie author, it's a lot more hours. And that is a balance that I'm still trying to find of, well, how driven do I need to be? And how many hours should I actually be sleeping in a night? And how long can I go before, you know, I have a nervous breakdown and need a day off because my brain just can't do story anymore. And so that is a balance that I'm continuing to find. And, you know, when, when we all reemerge from the pandemic and the world goes back to normal, I think that that'll be a balance that I'm still trying to find. But the nice thing about being an indie author is that I do control my own schedule. So I've been working a lot in audio this year and I did not understand going into it how time consuming that was going to be even just hiring narrators, how much time that was going to take out of my schedule. And so if you looked at my publishing plan from the beginning of the year, and then you looked at what had been done, you would laugh. It's comical how much I thought I was going to get done and what's actually been done. But on the plus side, I don't announce my schedule until the pre-orders are posted. So I won't do it until I know I can get those books up. And so there's no one who's disappointed but me, but it, it is a learning curve. And I think it's going to continue to be a learning curve for at least, you know, the next year and a half, two years as I figure out what, what life is going to be like after all the chaos and how I really want to manage my business as an author. But since I'm the one in charge of the schedule, I have that, that room to grow and, and learn as I go. 
That's man. That's really amazing to to hear someone finding that balance and and able to sort of learn along the way, but also have the ability to take charge and know that you're making the decisions and you're making the announcements. Um, tell me about these characters that you have brought to life in your books, um, how they've grown to become the series that they are. And maybe with someone who's new to you as an author and to these titles might best benefit from hearing a description of any of the series, a brief synopsis of a few, or maybe some insights into um, whether or not there's a connection between these series as far as thematic, or if each is an opportunity to uh, focus on certain aspects, storytelling or character or something else that was valuable and that you can share to those who are listening. Sure. I think I, all of my stories are very character driven. I think that's the actor in me. I just, I don't know how to function if it's not character driven. Um, it's also very weird. Like, thank, thank God for my husband because he is such a tolerant man. Uh, I make him read all of my books out loud to me as part of my editing process, because if it can't be said out loud, I don't want it in the book. It just, it has to be natural in your mouth or I, I can't do it. Even if it's just like narration and describing something in a cave, I just want it to be able to be spoken because the spoken word is part of me as an actor and he does it. He reads them all. So he's great. That's, that's very <laughs> impressive. I can't get my wife to read much of my stuff because her biggest problem is at some point I change something. And if I change the things she likes, she's like, well, wait a minute, what are we doing here? And I'm like, this is revision. This is, you know, how we get to the place. Uh, it's amazing that he's so committed and willing to be that voice for you. So you can hear how these sound in someone else's mouth and sort of figure out when it does or simply doesn't work. Yeah, no, he's, he's great. I think he's only made a bargain with me once. There was one character where there, he was like, if she dies, that's it. I'm never helping you with another book again. <laughs> I was like, okay, she gets to live. Um, Fine. <laughs> but I wasn't going to kill her anyway. Uh, but it's really funny because when I join a new cast for a show, they, there's always the inevitable, wait, you're an author. Wait, you have how many books? Where do I start? Um, and it's hard. It's hard to say where someone should start. It really depends on what kind of vibe you're interested in. All of my books are YA fantasy. Some are more mature than others. But if you just want like to sit around and laugh and be taken in a way, away in an absurd story, then The Tale of Bryant Adams is the series you want to start with. The first book is How I Magically Messed Up My Life in Four Freaking Days. And from the title, like you, you can tell it's, it's modern, it's funny, it's tongue in cheek. It, you know, it's in Manhattan and he has a cell phone that contains an entire magical library. You know, it's weird. It's things like that. It's fun. I love it. It's fun. Um, then there's Girl of Glass, which is a dystopian with some paranormal. So that is my book that it's not a message piece. I never want to have a message, but the question I wanted to ask is what does the end of the world look like from the point of view of the upper 1% who's chosen to survive? And if you are one of those privileged people, what, what do you need to do about the people who are suffering? What is your obligation there? And 
that was really fun to look at dystopian from this different point of view and required some very cool research trips to uh, a lot of botanical gardens and biodomes. So that was fun. Uh, the Tethering series is a contemporary fantasy that really has a, a very strong love story at its center. Um, Maggie Trent is sort of Chronicles of Narnia meets Doctor Who. There's world hopping and it's it's very much like a creature of the week where each book is its own adventure and they do have the overarching plot line, but it is, it is creature of the week. Here's the bad guy for this book. Um, as far as characters and interlocking worlds, the biggest one for me are my Ilbrea books. So I wrote Anchor and Crown, which is book one in the Guilds of Ilbrea series first. And I loved that book and I loved writing that book, but there was one character in it, Enna, who, as I was writing her, I realized she was bigger than the role I had given her in the Guilds of Ilbrea series and she needed her own series. So I, I shelved Guilds of Ilbrea and I wrote a series for her that is four books and one optional prequel novella. It's the end of a Brea series. Book one is Ember and Stone and wrote her whole story down that is separate from Ilbrea and or Guild of Ilbrea. And my plan for that world is that I actually want to have seven series that take place in the in the same country. And they're all gonna be separate. You could jump in at book one of any of the different series I've been meticulously careful to make sure that all the information you need is there without, you know, pulling a, this is how we play Quidditch for the fifth time on anybody. Um, but it, it's been amazing to explore that world and explore that world from different points of view. And I think my fascination with that is really from being an actor and being on stage. And it, it's, it's one of those ensemble member things. So if you are, you know, the one belting downstage in the spotlight, you're probably the same character for the whole show. You have one point of view, you have one focus, you have one core motivation that's drawing you throughout the story. But when you're an ensemble member, your point of view of the action of the story, of the protagonist, what their actions are, if they are good, if they are bad, what you think of them as a person, what you think of the world, it changes every time you change wigs. So you could have seven, eight, nine, twelve different points of view in a two and a half hour show. And you view everything so differently depending on who you are in that ensemble. And that's that's really why I I want to look so deeply at Ilbrea and what does it look like from the sorcerer's point of view? What does it look like from the commoner's point of view? What does it look like from the people who are actually in the middle of the action fighting everything? And, you know, it's hard to plot all of these stories that are completely separate, have their own beginning, middle, and end, don't interact with each other, but lock into the greater whole in a meaningful way, not only for the world building, but for the reader. But that's why I want to do that so bad because it's, it's a big world and it has more stories to be told, and I want to take the time to tell them all. And maybe readers will only read Anna's series and never go on to Guilds of La Brea, and that's cool. She has a beginning, middle, and end. It's a full series. You don't need to go any farther with it. But 
if someone were to want to read all seven series, they would see the entire world. They would see all the perspectives. And, and I really want to offer that to my readers. It's quite a gift that you're offering. Hearing the descriptions of each one of these series, I'm, I'm completely caught up. I, I, <laughs> I'm lucky enough to podcast on a regular basis with quite a few comic book nerds. And one of them is a devout Doctor Who fan. And as soon as you said, oh, yeah, it's like, you know, Creature of the Week, Doctor Who Adventures. I was like, well, I know someone who would like that. And as you were describing each series, I was reminded of someone that I knew who would be drawn to it. Some of those people might even include me. I like <laughs> dystopian approaches. Uh, as soon as you mentioned the idea of the 1% and dystopia, I immediately was drawn to all of my favorite books from stuff like Survivor, where you're on a plane and this guy's telling you how we got here and it counts it backwards to wonderful other stories. I'm curious what your storytelling and reading experiences were like that might have helped to be inspirations for the stories you're telling now. Were you a big uh, fantasy or dystopian science fiction, science fiction or humor fan when you read? What what did you enjoy reading when you were younger? What do you enjoy reading now? Where do you find your inspirations? I, I was a very early reader um, and I would read basically anything that I could get my hands on. I was lucky enough to, my father volunteered at the local library. So they'd let me like cheat and take out extra books sometimes. <laughs> so that was lucky. nice. So yeah. lucky. Because <laughs> all the librarians knew me because he would help like tutor people on computers and so I would get stuck sitting in the back room while he was like volunteering to help people and so they they knew me well enough that they they knew my dad was coming back next Tuesday to help people with computers so if I needed two extra books that's fine but I loved Madeline Lingell I read every Dragon Riders of Pern book that I could get my hands on I don't think I really started getting into dystopian until I was older but then you know with the huge series like Maze Runner, Hunger Games, like there was this huge wave of dystopian that sort of blew the genre back open. And I was like, oh, this is, this is great. And I think I had read books that were like that before, but I had never realized it was a niche. I had never seen them so well-defined. It was like, oh no, this is dystopian. It was like, oh, this is sad sci-fi. Mm. Um, but I I loved all of that. I I do tend now to read whatever is the biggest of my genres. Like what what's on the end cap at Barnes and Noble right now? What's getting all the chatter on Bookstagram? Just to to stay up to date on the genre on YA lit and staying in the know of what readers are looking for. What what sort of coming off the crest as far as big publishers looking for it. What are readers posting about and saying, oh, I wish I could find more books like. So I, I do do a lot of that. Um, yeah, but even still, it's some are fantasy retelling, some are contemporary fantasy, uh, some dystopians thrown in there. I love some good stalking Jack the Ripper just, you know, for a little absurdity in my life. But yeah, mostly YA fantasy, just because I, even with all the reading I do, I still feel like I'm behind on what's big in the genre right now. 
I, I'm impressed that you keep up that much. There are times when I'll hear about a new book series and I'm like, wait, how many books into it? When did I miss the first one? How, how did this happen? And clearly there are ways to keep up. I, I'm curious now what some exploration will reveal to me um, about those opportunities and, and what they can tell me about what's current in the genre. Because sometimes I, I come to things so late that I'll hear later like, yeah, that book series has been out for like 10 years. Are you not paying attention? Now it's being made into something else. And I, I chuckle and say, okay, so I missed that one. Um, one of the things that, that catches me also is I, I'm reminded that I was lucky enough with those uh, great fun nerd friends of mine to sit down with a, a young uh, a YA author named Cami Garcia. And she's recently been doing some work over in the comic side as well. And it was fun for us to talk about her transition because she, she revealed something that I got a kick out of, and it's something I'd love to follow up with you. And that's when she said, I hate writing scenes. I'm great at dialogue. I love dialogue, but I don't want to describe everything that's going on around as much. I want to tell you what's happening between two people. And that's how I start telling a story. And then later when I have to put in elements that describe where they are, and other details, that's the work for. But the joy part is just writing a, a slew of dialogue and then packing it with other details that create these scenes. I was curious, where do you enter into your stories from? Do you start with dialogue or description? Is there a way that you have found to be a, a regular process that, that works you or walks you into your stories? I think for me, a lot of it depends on if I'm writing in the first person point of view or if I'm writing in the third person point of view. Um, so the Tale of Bryant Adams and the Enova Brea series are both written in first person. And those to me are so much simpler because it is really all dialogue. The entire book is dialogue because they are telling you their story. And so it's very simple because there are words they would use and words they wouldn't use. And it drives my editor crazy because they're like, you should put this word in here instead. And I'm like, no, Bryant would never use that word. He can't say that. Like he's a 17 year old geek. He's not going to say that. And so there is that, that comfort of all you really have to do is know their voice well enough in your head. And it's easy to describe anything because they're just speaking. When you get into third person, I'm starting on a new project right now, and I wrote half of the first chapter so far. And I love the action that's happening in it, but I, I was going back through and I was reading it and I was like, I don't love the voice. I don't love the voice. So I'm going to have to go back in and refigure out how to tell this series of events that I'm really happy with the series of events, but that's, that's not the right pace. That's not the right tone. And you do have to figure out what, what your tone for your third person narrator is. And once you have that, it gets a lot easier. But for me, it's just finding the, what is the vocabulary, even in third person, there has to be a set of what, what do we describe in this book? What are we fixating on? Is this world built around sights and smells? Is this world built around we have so much different food to try. Is this world built around what the street feels like under your feet? And yeah, you're going to describe different things when you enter different locations. But if your book is all about 
how colors are vibrant, how colors are dark, then you're going to find yourself sticking to those things because that's what the reader needs to know for transitions. And then you can pepper in other details like, oh, and the flowers are smell really nice or, oh, the bakery smells bad. That's really weird. But there is going to be those consistent details that they subconsciously are looking for because you've started giving them to them from the beginning. And that's, that's what I'm still looking for on this new project is what, what do we always need to notice and what vocabulary set do we use for it? Are they vivid colors? Are they plain colors? Are we using purple and red or are we using, you know, scarlet? Are we using sapphire? Are we using emerald? Like, how do we do this? And I think it's just another character voice, but it is one that is 10 times harder to discover because they aren't just talking to you. I would agree. And I'm also amazed as I think about that. I, I get amazed a lot. So if you hear me say the word amazed numerous times <laughs> as I have throughout this, it's just, I, I enjoy listening to others because the thought process that you begin with something like that, it, it brings me back to that idea of what you were talking about with the first person narrator, how you can understand what that character would and wouldn't do, what they would and wouldn't say, how they would or wouldn't say it. And it, it in many ways comes back to those choices that you would make as an actor and the way you would play a character and, and how you would present it, depending on whether or not you're the star or part of the ensemble or, or the role at that moment. And how keeping that in mind is important when you're now talking about a story from the third person where those choices might not be as clear, but you know that those details when they reveal themselves are going to help you see uh, what those choices mean and actually also how you're going to portray those meanings in the story. So the details that you were talking about, the voice that comes with it, I'm really intrigued by this idea, how those two tie together. And I love the way you describe that. So thanks for walking everybody through the, that process. I know I enjoyed it as well. Um, and I think something else that other people might enjoy, and, and I will, is talking about this next stage that we had a chance to um, sort of mention before we started recording. And now I would love to hear uh, as much about it as possible. And that's the approach that you're developing, which is taking these written books and turning them into great audio stories for your listeners. Yeah, I am really excited. It's It's been a, such a learning curve and such a great and thrilling process, but I'm having three of my series turned into audiobooks, The Tethering, Girl of Glass, and Enna of Ilbrea. Um, it's been a sort of a project that I wanted to embark on for probably about two years, ever since I, I went, since I started figuring out that I was going to be going indie, I knew that I wanted to have audio for my books because it is such a booming market. And there are some people who can't access books unless they're in audio, or there are people who the only time they can read is when they're commuting and they can read with their ears. And so I knew that that was something I wanted to do. But figuring out how I wanted to do it was a different beast entirely. The, the hard thing about being in charge of my own books is there are so many jobs I want to do, but the only thing I'm the only one that can do is creating new content, is writing books. 
And originally I wanted to narrate the female protagonist myself. I am an actor. This is what I do for a living. Um, and I think having a story told by the author does have a great value because then you know exactly how the story is meant to be told. I quickly realized that I will never have enough time to narrate all my female protagonist books. It's just not going to happen. I would have to stop writing and writing is the only job only I can do. So I, it took a lot because I, you know, your, your books are, are your treasures. They are a part of you, but I did decide that I was going to let it go and hire some narrators. So I hired a narrator for the tethering series and for the girl of glass series. I hired them both through the ACX platform, though the books are released wide, not just through Audible. So you can request them at your local library or get them on Apple books or Kobo audio or wherever you like them. But listening to the auditions and it's weird because I'm an actor. I audition for a living. It's a thing. But listening to people read samples from my books because they wanted me to hire them to read my books was such a strange experience. Just being like, really? I'm that fancy? You're like <laughs> sending me these, I would get emails. So they send you their auditions, but then your email address is available to them as well. And I'd get emails being like, Dear Miss O'Russell, I am so interested in, in working for you. I bought your book and I read your book as research. They read my whole book as research for their two-minute audition. And I was getting all of these emails and I was like, I'm not, I'm not this fancy. I'm never going to be this fancy. <laughs> but thank you very much. But I found two wonderful narrators for the series. And right now, uh, Girl of Glass, the sequel, Boy of Blood, are both out. Night of Never will probably be out by the time this podcast airs. It's almost done. I just need a few more days. Uh, the Tethering is out. The sequel to The Tethering, The Sirens Realm, is almost ready. And it's been great. Uh, more time-consuming than I thought it was when going to be when I hired it out because proofing audiobooks takes forever, and that is not something I'm willing to hire out because it's my book, and I need to hear it for myself. I, I'm not going to release something to my audience that I haven't quality-checked thoroughly, even though my narrators are amazing and I completely trust them. I just, as a human, have to do it myself. Um, and then I am narrating the Anna Vilbrea series myself. And I have a wonderful, wonderful sound engineer, which is great because there's no way I'd get it done otherwise. But with Anna, because it is first person and because of her story and her place in the world of Ilbrea, there was no way I was going to be able to find someone to do it for me and not make their life a living hell with being like, no, that's not, no, that's not how it goes. <laughs> so I was like, I just need to do it myself because I'm going to be an actor's nightmare and I don't want to do that to anybody. Um, but it, right now, Wrath and Wing, the prequel novella is available uh, the first book, Ember and Stone, will soon be available. And it's been amazing as an actor to have that challenge of telling a story on such a small scale, on such an independent scale. Because, you know, on, on stage, you have this entire world, and then you're in a recording booth, and the, the world is still there, but only with your voice and a very quiet voice at that. And so it's, it's been wonderful, but I'm, I'm really happy with how it's turning out. And I'm very excited to get that into the world. 
but that audio has been why my publishing schedule for this year slowed down so much because it's just one of those, it takes me about, and because I'm, you know, a perfectionist, so it goes very slowly to, to record an audiobook for me is about 40 to 50 hours work. And then that's not with the polishing it and um, proofing it. And then for the audiobooks that I've hired out, that's still about, you know, 15 to 20 hours of proofing. So if you add all those up for the 12 audiobooks that I'm going to have out by the end of the year, that's like writing three <laughs> novels worth of time. <laughs> but, you know, it's 12 audiobooks for three novels worth of time. And it's, it's a whole new reach of uh, readers and listeners that I can't reach otherwise. And I want to have my stories be as accessible as possible. And so this has been a very important project to me. And 2021, I will relook at my schedule and see what other audiobooks I can put out there. But I, I definitely want to stay in that community and maintain that availability for my readers. Megan, thank you so much for describing all of that. Um, I don't tell a lot of people because it was just a fun personal art project, but I took a short story I wrote and turned it into an audio story. And I learned so much just about trying to turn this little 25-page story into something that didn't sound like it was recorded on a scraggly record from sometime in the 20s. And figuring all of that out and the time that it took, I thought to myself, oh, this was a neat experience to learn, but it was also a teaching experience that showed me how much time would be necessary if I tried to turn future stories into audio, what I would need to do. And I never even got as far as taking a completed book and then trying to turn it around. You've gone through those steps. You've learned so much. And also, I think what's really uh, extremely valuable that you described was learning where your limits were and what you were willing to invest time into, and then looking at how much time was required, what you needed to actually consider relinquishing as far as which parts you're actually going to play such a pivotal role in. And when it comes to narrating, the amount of time you would need to invest and the amount of time it takes away from your writing, and then the realization that led to your decision, that's a lot of experience and a lot of growth. And I can imagine that for those listening who maybe aren't aware of how much work that requires, you're giving them an insight into what they should consider before they even start on that process and how much work is involved. And then maybe even asking the question, how much of that time do you want to spend on one part when it's going to take away so much from your writing? Yeah. I mean, and I got lucky. I found a, a great audio editor who has been wonderful, but I also... I would have been pretty screwed if I hadn't been in the theater because trying to just figure out a mic setup and a sound booth setup was so hard because the quality has to be so perfect for an audiobook. And because of my time in theater, I randomly 10 years ago worked with a guy who was the head of audio for something on Broadway. And then Andrew Lloyd Webber specifically requested him to go on the Love Never Dies tour. But then he got shipped to San Francisco to like work on Cursed Child, like really good audio guy. And we've stayed close enough over the years that when 
we texted him, my husband and I texted him and we're like, help, what do we do? We get this phone call from Broadway being like, okay, go to the store, buy these things, download this program. (laughs) So we got like this (laughs) breakdown from one of, you know, the best sound designers in the country being like, this is what you need to buy. And we're like, but that's a lot of pieces. Do we really need, no, this is what you need to buy, (laughs) buy this. So if it hadn't been for like, this guy we were friends with 10 years ago, I, I, it would have taken me months longer to figure out the process just because experimenting with the right microphone for your vocal tone. And that's also the thing is that he had mixed my voice before. So mm. he knew based on my voice, what we would need in order to do it. And that's a privilege that most authors don't have. They don't have someone that mixed their voice nine shows a week for six months. So it's very helpful. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, I I think it's also another great example of how important it is to maintain those great relationships because you never know what you and someone else can do for each other down the road and what the experience you had together can lend to that. That's Wow. I mean, that's, that's really impressive and a testament, if nothing else. Um, Megan, you have done so much. You have so much ahead on the horizon. Um, how can people keep up with you? Where is the best place? I mean, I, I was lucky enough to check out your website, but I know they're probably given the way social media is or other platforms that people can keep up with you. Is there a best way you recommend? Do you have a favorite or do you just want to list them all? It's your choice. Um, so you can find me on Facebook. My name, my name is Megan O'Russell and that is O apostrophe R-U-S-S-E-L-L. Uh, you can find me on there. I'm also on Instagram as O'Russell Megan because they wouldn't let me put my names in the right order on Instagram. Uh, my website is MeganO'Russell.com. You can find my books there. You can find links to all the audiobooks there. You will also find my podcast there, A Book in a Dream, which has a lot of fun things about being an author and fangirling about different books and it's a great time uh so you can check me out there i'm also on twitter and you can email me anytime at megan at meganorussell.com if you have any questions about you know the authoring processes i am happy to help thank you that's huge and thank you for bringing up book in a dream the podcast um I'm, i was measuring how much time we had and i was like okay that's gonna potentially be one that we come back to if you're open to a, a follow-up conversation that would sure. be a lot of fun um i i've been working on a question that i would like to ask people at the end of each interview and i was always moved by the inside the actor's studio i love that the, the, the version of the proofs interview And I decided to narrow it down to just one of those questions. And I'm going to propose it to you in the way that I, I like, I would like for it to sound and we'll figure out if I actually say it that way, but should the end of your time on this earth arrive and when it does and you pass off to whatever's next, do you want someone to be there wherever that next place is? And if you do, who would that person be? And what would you like them to say to you when you arrive? Oh, that's tough. I don't know. I mean, 
the the family loyalist in me is like i should say like my great grandmother or something meaningful but really there's a, a theater producer who i worked with who um has not passed on he is still here um but he's you know 60 years older than me so hopefully he'll go first i <laughs> as horrible as that sounds um but he said the best thing and i'll edit it because i don't want to swear in your podcast but after a horrible rehearsal, it, it was bad. It was a dress rehearsal that was just a nightmare. And he, he comes back into the room and he stops in front of the whole cast. And he said, well, kids, we got through the effort. And he walked back out. And that is the single most inspirational thing anyone has ever said to me. Like sometimes that's it. That's all you got. You got through it. And I feel like when my time comes, if someone's like, you got through, then that, that'll be enough for me. That, that's what I want to hear. That's awesome. I couldn't think of a better answer. And my favorite thing is hearing an answer like that, because I just think to myself, man, you know, there's more to that story too. And there's more to the meaning behind the story. But the fact that you were willing to share that part of the story with us is a, it's like a gem. We all get <laughs> to take us, we all get to take it with us now, right? Like just, you know, there's a treasure and if we all get that little gem that we can take, uh, that's quite a, a gem that you've gifted us with. So, Megan, thank you. I've loved exploring your storytelling, uh, your process, your characters, your adventure. And as I said, for leaving us with a great gem at the end. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you. I had a great time. Wonderful. That's going to go ahead and bring this episode of Storytelling with Seth and my conversation with Megan or Russell to a close. You've heard all the great ways that you can find her. I'm gonna encourage you to do so, simply because it looks like there are just so many stories ahead and I'd hate for you to miss out on any of them. Thanks very much for joining me and this great conversation with the amazing Megan or Russell. I love how many times I said amazing, I figured why not punctuate it one more time. The amazing Megan O'Russell. What a great story. What a great uh, experience and a journey from the stage to books, audiobooks now, and a future that's still unwritten. I loved hearing so much about her story. I'd love to hear any of your thoughts. Please remember if you have any questions, comments, or anything else you'd like to let me know, share with me about this or any episode of Storytelling with Seth, you can find me on social media. I'm the number one more singleton on Twitter. I'm Seth the Writer on Instagram, although my dogs, Bruno and Fiji, are much cuter. I'll understand if you decide to interact with them over me. And then finally, visit me. Leave me a voice message on the Anchor platform or contact me on my website, Seth Singleton Storyteller. Or... For an adventure, just type my name, Seth Singleton, and the word story into a search bar. See what comes up, and we go from there. Really enjoyed the opportunity to share this, like so many other great conversations, with you. And I'd like to give a quick shout-out to the amazing Blind Blogger for introducing me to Megan O'Russell and a few more guests I'll be featuring here on upcoming episodes of Storytelling with Seth. Until next time, thank you so much. I really enjoyed sharing this story with you and I can't wait till the next time we get the chance to sit down and talk story.